Corinthians. So you can go ahead and turn there uh, in your copy of God's uh, Word or turn on your Bible app to 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to study the first 17 verses this morning. And as you turn there, I'm just curious. You don't have to raise your hand, okay, especially for this question. uh, But I'm just curious if you have ever been a part of a dysfunctional group of people. I mean, just, oh, I'm seeing hands up all over, unashamed, just letting it out there, okay? I didn't even say which group, so you, that, that was probably smart on your part. I mean, we, we, like we all have been part of dysfunctional groups, maybe at work or maybe at school. You know, have you ever done a group project and, like, you just experienced new levels of dysfunction in your group project? Or, you know, uh, maybe it's uh, just in our own families, right? Uh, In our homes, we experience dysfunction at times, even in the church, right? Uh, Not this one, of course, if you're new, not this one, but uh, but other churches, you know, there can be dysfunction at times. But, But what we see as we turn to 1 Corinthians is that we know as imperfect people, imperfect people, not only do we experience dysfunction, we actually contribute to dysfunction. And this is what we see with the the people at the church of Corinth, okay? There was some massive dysfunction happening in the life of this church. This was a messy church. They had a lot of issues that I'm going to introduce you today to today. And, And what we find, though, is that even in the place of our dysfunction, God wants to bring his grace, In the place of our chaos, God wants to bring his grace and his truth into our lives. So that's why we are calling this series, The Cross Into Our Chaos. Because we see there are a lot of chaotic things happening in the church at Corinth. But as we dive into these first 17 verses, we are going to discover this grace that wants to enter in, that God wants to bring to our chaos and dysfunction. And, and what these verses show us is, listen, grace has a name. Grace has a name. Let me read these verses for us about a people that needed more than just a little bit of grace in their lives and in their church. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. This is is what he says in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you, Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you 
to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. A lot of times the ESV uses the word brothers, but in the Greek it's really referring to siblings and a family. So I'm going to say brothers and sisters as we move throughout this letter. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray one more time before we dive into these words. God, we thank you for your great love for us, Lord. We thank you for your attentiveness to us, God. It blows our minds that you are the least bit interested in us. And yet, God, we see even right here, how intentional you are in your love, how, how loaded with grace you are to us, even in all of our flaws and failures. And so God, wherever it is, Lord, that we need to know you more, God, wherever it is that we need your grace to come and shape our hearts again, God, we ask that you would deliver it and you would do it by your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. The first word of Paul's letter introduces us to the author, which is the Apostle Paul. You see here he says, Paul called by the will of God. And what he is referring to here, what you need to know about the author of this letter is that Paul was not always someone who followed Jesus. In fact, if we back up to the book of Acts and we were to go to chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9, we would find that Paul was not only approving of the death of the earliest followers of Jesus, but then he would take trips to go and imprison followers of Jesus. He not, he not only thought that Christians were frauds, okay, he thought they were so destructive that he essentially set out to destroy them. That was until he met Jesus. We find out about this in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus shows up in a blinding light and he tells Paul, hey, listen, you're persecuting me because you're persecuting my people and I have a different plan for you. In fact, I'm going to change your life so completely around that the people that you used to persecute, now you're going to join them and you're going to try to get other people to join my team. And this is exactly what Paul does. He goes on, as we see throughout the book of Acts, he goes on three different missionary journeys. The first one is a little shorter. Then he goes on a second one that it will take him to the city of 
Corinth. We can read about this in Acts chapter 18 when Paul gets to Corinth. He does what he does. He reasons with people. He tries to persuade them. And it says many, both Jews and Greeks, believed that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised one, that he is the one that was going to deliver us out of all of our mess. It says this in Acts 18 verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. But that doesn't mean that everything was great for Paul in Corinth. In fact, there was such opposition that Paul, like he faced many times, beaten and run out of town. There were people that were opposing him and reviling him. So much so that Jesus, being the kind of God that he is, shows up to Paul in a vision one night, and he says this in verses 9 through 11, do not be afraid. How many of you would like to get a personal message from Jesus in a dream? Maybe you haven't didn't realize it, but nevertheless, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Oh, I love those words. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many people in this city. What Jesus was saying to Paul is this. I'm not done with you here because I have a lot more people that I am going to make sure hear the message about my love. And it says that Paul then stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. After he finished his season in Corinth, he returns to Antioch where he started. And then he goes on a third missionary journey, first to the city of Ephesus where he spent at least two years. And it is from there that most scholars believe he wrote this letter dated around A.D. 56. And this letter was prompted by discouraging news that Paul had received from some of the Corinthians who reported a host of issues that we are going to see Paul address over roughly the next six months as we cruise through this letter. Clearly, the audience of the church of Corinth was a chaotic church. They were an imperfect church. They were really, really flawed, and they needed a lot of God's grace. What we're going to see is that they were arrogant and divisive. There were issues of incest and prostitution, not just in the city of Corinth, but in the church. They not only had disorderly worship services, but listen to this. This is a new one. Uh, We haven't experienced it at Redemption Show probably because the way that we, thank God, we practice the Lord's Supper, but you know, Hopefully if we did it like they did it, where there's like a meal and wine and whatever. Okay, there were actually people that were not only waiting, not waiting for people to get there, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is a messed up church. They were selfish and some even denied the resurrection. But in spite of all of this, The Apostle Paul, of all people, probably what made him such a great missionary and and preacher of God's word. Okay, he knew a lot about the grace of God. He knew a lot about the patience of God. That if God could take his life and turn it around, that this God who is infinite in his character has infinite love and infinite grace and infinite patience to give to people. And so he appeals to them. He writes to them to call them 
toward a cross-centered unity and Christ-likeness. This is his purpose again and again and again. As we move our way through all of the issues that the Corinthians needed to work through, we are going to find that Paul is calling them back to who Jesus is and what he has done for them in the work of his life, death, and resurrection. It doesn't matter if we're talking about sex. It doesn't matter if we're talking about relationships, division, whatever. He's going to keep bringing it back to Jesus every single time. And so throughout this letter, what we're going to see is Paul calls the Corinthians and consequently us to live to reflect the name of Jesus. Live to reflect the name of Jesus. The first major issue he's going to address in the first four chapters is the issue of division. I have two encouragements as we work our way through these verses. The first one is found in the first nine verses, and that is simply this. Recognize the grace that is found in Jesus. Recognize the grace found in in Jesus. What I want to do is this. I want to walk you through these first nine verses and give you five facets of the grace of Jesus. Number one, we see that the grace of Christ invites us into God's love. It invites us in. It, it, it calls us to, to step into the love of God. Paul talks about his own experience in the first verse. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. In other words, Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't like, Jesus, I want to be on your team here. Clearly that wasn't the case. No, God came looking for Paul and he called him to be a part of his team. But Paul wasn't the only one. We read in the very next line about his brother, meaning his, his family member in Christ, Sosthenes. And this is probably the same Sosthenes that is written about in Acts chapter 18 as Paul is in Corinth, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And many believe that he is probably serving as Paul's secretary for this letter. But it's not just these two guys. It is also everyone who is part of the church in Corinth. All of the people who follow Jesus, like, this, is, this is what a church is, by the way. Just if, if you're like, what is a church? I know we think about like institutions and buildings and ways of doing things or whatever, okay? And it's not that these things are unimportant, but what is most important about a church is that a church is a group of people who follow Jesus and follow Jesus together. That's a church. And so, Paul says, look, all of you have been invited in no matter what your age is, no matter what your background may be, no matter your ethnicity, your gender, your social status, okay? God shows no partiality. He invites everyone to follow him. And so just, just, just consider that. Just consider that for a moment, okay? These aren't empty words, okay? This is like, you know, I don't get up here to preach sermons, okay? Just to like throw some information at you and hope that you remember it for, for a few hours before you go on about your, your weekend, okay? Like the, the, the point of sharing this is that we would consider who God is and how amazing he is, how amazing he is in his love. He has actually invited you. He knows your name. He knows how messed up your life is and my life is, and yet he invites us anyway. In fact, that's one of the reasons he does invite us is because we need him so much. 
So number one, the first facet of the grace of Jesus is that we have been invited into God's love. But then number two, we have also been changed for a new way of living. Changed for a new way of living. As he addresses the church of God that is in Corinth in verse two, he says what? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. The word sanctified is a word that we don't throw around a lot in our culture or whatever, but it just means to be set apart. It means to to live differently. It means to be holy. Uh, Paul calls the church saints, which some translates were just like holy people. If you follow Jesus, you're a saint. It means that, that you've been brought into this new way of living where now because we follow Jesus, we want to think like Jesus thinks. We want to live like Jesus lives. We want to want what he wants, love what he loves. And this is now the new reality and the new goal of our lives. But, but you and I both know that our challenge is to live in this broken world in a way that is both clear and compelling. And I think the book of Corinthians has so much to say about how Christians should seek to live in culture, okay? Because some Christians and some churches will say, you know what? It's like Christ against the culture. That Christians are just here to say like, hey, this is what's wrong with you. This is what's wrong with society. And it's just like so antagonistic. But then some Christians and some churches are like, man, the world is so great. And, you know, the culture is so amazing. And we just kind of want to take everything in and receive it all. But Paul is going to offer us a third way. It's not Christ against the culture. It's not Christ of the culture. But it is Christ and Christians in the culture. And and how we can understand this is there are some things in God's good world that we can receive. There are some things we can and need to reject. And then there are other things that we need to redeem. And just because we are still in the NBA finals and it's game five, I know some of you are like tired of basketball and I'm sorry. All right, I'll stop after this week, I promise. Okay, well, after we win it, I'll probably bring it one more time and then I'll stop. Okay, sorry. But, um, you know, just think like game... Game five, game six, self-discipline six, like we can receive that as, as part of God's good world. Now, what we probably need to reject is all of the, you know, language that the, the Boston fans are, are screaming out to Draymond. And, and, and you know, uh, we don't want to see like police cars turned over as the Doug Boat Parade is happening in our great city. Uh, but, but then there are some things that just need to be redeemed. You know, like the attitude of Draymond Green. You know what I'm saying? Just like, there are just some, yeah, that's right, I said it. All right, uh, there are just some things that can be, like, they're redeemable. And we want to see God do these things. He's not the only one, right? I said Boston fans too, yes, us. Um, so, so, so we see that, that, that we have been invited into God's love and we have been changed for this new way of living. And part of that change is that God wants us to live in a unified way because we've been brought into a new family. Paul says that we are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of Jesus. 
And so what we have here is Paul writing to a specific group of followers of Jesus who lived in the same area, okay? That's what we know as a local church, but Paul wants to enlarge their thinking. So he says, look, this is not just for you, but you are in this with everyone in every place all over the world that also follow Jesus. That's the universal church. And so we are called together to follow Jesus. We share what he's going to talk about in verse 9, the fellowship of the Son. In other words, we have a partnership. There's a mutuality. There's now this shared vision and mission in life, a shared way of living that we can unite around. Maybe we won't see everything the same way perfectly, but we can be united through the grace of Christ. But then he also says, number four, that you are gifted. And you are gifted through spiritual gifts. He talks about this in verses 4 through 8. He says, I give thanks to my God. And this is just, we should just pause and recognize, listen, Paul knows how messed up these people are, and yet he still thanks God for them. Now, now, now I know that's hard, right? I know like when you are dealing with people that, you know, aren't super edifying and you just like don't love to be around them. We all have experiences like that in life at different times. Um, so, so often, we're going to like pull away and we're going like to not be thankful. But Paul actually thanks God for the Corinthians and what he's done in their lives because he sees God's grace all over them. In spite of all their flaws, God's grace was on them. And he sees this in large part through the spiritual gifts that they have received. Now, if you're new to Redemption Hill, you want a little more info on spiritual gifts, you can just go to our website and listen to the last seven sermons, or at least a few of those. And we just finished a series on the spiritual gifts, seven weeks we called Same God. And the Corinthians, we spent four of those weeks in Corinthians because Paul talks about it a lot here. He says that these Corinthians had so experienced the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit that they had gifts in all speech and all knowledge. He says, I think it's what, verse 7, that they are not lacking in any gift. He says that their gifts worked to not only enrich them, but enrich others through them. This is another purpose of the spiritual gift, that we build one another up, that we are adding value, a spiritual richness to one another's lives as we serve through the strength that the Spirit of God is supplying us. And not only that, one other thing here that we see that I just want to echo from our last uh, you know, seven weeks, it says that these spiritual gifts, they're not lacking in any as they wait for the coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ. In other words, just like 1 Corinthians 13 explicitly states, what is implied here is that these gifts will be present in the church until Jesus comes back. But when Jesus comes back, these gifts won't be necessary because it'll be all spirit, all son, no sin, everything's good. So Paul says, look, you have been invited, you've been changed, you've been united, you've been gifted. And then finally, he says, you've been strengthened. And you've been strengthened to go the distance. You and I both know that these past two years of living, they have been hard. They've been really hard. Our 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 uh, strength and our endurance has been tested in some ways like never before. And this is, uh, uh, um, in, in, in large respect, uh, 
a picture of our spiritual journey that as we follow Jesus, as we seek to live like Jesus, we are going to need endurance. We're going to need God's grace to help us make it to the end. And Paul is saying, look, that's what you can expect as you follow Christ. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can hear an echo of Paul's words later, uh, uh, later in Romans chapter 8 where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When God looks at us, if we follow Jesus, our record is clean. We have no guilt before him now or in the future when we meet him face to face. And so God's grace is all over the Corinthians. And yet what, what Paul is doing, I love what Paul is doing. We have to kind of step back to see this. But, but Paul is actually setting a very brilliant and intentional tone with these opening words. Because what he does is he slides in some themes with his greeting and with his thanksgiving to say, hey, you guys are all about yourselves and you guys are being divisive and you guys are clearly not reflecting Jesus in the way that you're living. So I'm going to drop some grace of unity and sanctification and invitation and change and all of these things. He's setting a tone for what he's about to unfold. But not only that, Paul shows us that God's grace comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, at the, at the root of our, our sinfulness, where we miss the mark, where we deviate from God's plan, where we do our own thing, okay, at the root of it is our own selfish hearts. And what Paul is doing is he's, He's addressing the primary problem, which is their selfishness. And he's bringing God's remedy, which is Jesus Christ. In fact, did you see it? Nine different times. We only read nine verses. Nine times in nine verses, Paul names the name of Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives grace. Jesus is the one who brings the invitation. Jesus is the message. Jesus brings us together. Jesus is coming back. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And his point here is that he wants them to see everything starts with Jesus and everything happens because of Jesus and everything is ultimately aimed at glorifying Jesus. And so grace has a name. And it's our privilege to recognize the grace found in Jesus. If you'll live your life, if you'll live your life taking just a minute every day to step back and say, thank you to God for your grace, I'm telling you, you will be a different kind of person as you recognize God's goodness and grace to you. So number one, listen, number one, recognize the grace found in Jesus. But then number two, what Paul is going to say in these next seven verses, eight verses, is that we should unify around the cross of Jesus. Unify around the cross of Jesus. Paul moves to this first major problem in verse 10 as he addresses the division that is so rampant in the church of Corinth. And it says that he, Paul's very honest here. I just love how Paul is like, hey, you know, Chloe's people. 
they came to me and they shared that there are some major issues going on in the life of the church at Corinth. And I need, I want to help you guys out. Because what was happening here, as we read, people were focused on specific leaders. There were, there were leaders that maybe they gravitated to. Maybe it was because of their style. Maybe it was because of their personality. Maybe it was because of certain uh, interests or affinities or convictions or whatever. And, and we all kind of do this as people, right? Like there are just people that we connect with. There are leaders that we tend to like more than others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a bad thing if the leaders become the focus rather than Jesus. And so Paul goes on and he says, look, I know, I know what's happening here. There's a group of you that are saying, hey, I follow Paul. Paul's so great. Paul's the one that rode into our town. He got our church started. He's made so many sacrifices for the kingdom of God. Could there be any leader greater than our guy, AP, that's the Apostle Paul. Come on, people, follow me today, all right? You know, just, just keep up. All right, so that Apostle Paul, our guy AP. And then there's another group over here saying, like, AP, you're talking about AP Onlos. Come on now. I follow Apollos. Apollos is so great. He's so eloquent when he talks about God's word. It's so, it's so powerful and he connects so well and, you know, He's kind of a good-looking guy, too. You know, how many know that, you know, we get even caught up with silly things like that. And, you know, we follow certain people on Instagram, not just because of their content, but because of their style and their look or whatever. Okay, so it's like, Apollos is our guy. But then a third group says, what, you guys got it all twisted. We follow the originator himself, the rock of the church, Cephas, whose Greek name was Peter. And so it's Peter that we follow. Peter is our guy. Peter is the one who followed Jesus. Paul wasn't around and Apollos wasn't around for the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Paul and Apollos, they didn't walk on water like our guy Peter did. And so you have all of this arguing going on. Thankfully, there was a fourth group who said, we follow Christ. And what Paul is, is doing, he's appealing to them to, yes, take their focus off of people because people are never the ultimate point. Jesus is the ultimate point. And, and it's only as a leader is following Jesus and pointing us to Jesus that that leader, leader is worth anything anyway. I mean, this is what Paul goes on to say in chapter 3. I love this. He says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? We're only servants. And then, he, and then he even says, look, I planted, Apollos watered, but, but God gives the growth. So, so he who waters and he who plants, they're neither anything, only God who gives the growth. He says, I'm not anything, Apollos is not anything, Jesus is everything. So we need to focus on Christ. And, and, and today, listen, maybe we have a tendency to this at times, probably less so in our culture these days, which is perfectly fine. But... What we tend to do is maybe not focus so much on people that bring divisions, but it's perspectives. It's political issues, social issues, theological issues, interpretations of the Bible issues where it's like, oh, this is, this is our camp. And if you're not with us, you're against us. And we see this, oh, we see it on social media. We see it all over the news. We see it in our conversations at work all over the place. And so you listen, yes, it's, it's important to have convictions. 
But when it comes to following Jesus, what Paul is saying, keep the main thing, the main thing. No, keep the main one, the main thing. And follow Christ with everything you've got. Have the same mind and the same judgment. And then just to shift their focus and to bring things into perspective, he gives a flurry of what I believe are really irrefutable arguments to help them see how they need to correct their thinking and bring it back into alignment under the unity of Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? And we can almost hear this like mental conversation of these rhetorical questions where the, the Corinthians, they know better. Like they have to say like, no, Paul, Jesus isn't divided. He's perfect. He's always faithful. He always does what he says he will do. And so Paul's like, he's not divided. Then if you are in him and you are one with him, then why are you divided? Even an argument for their essential unity. And then Paul goes on and he asked this question, was, was Paul crucified for you? You're saying you follow Paul, you follow Paul. Like, were we crucified for you? And they have to respond like, Paul, absolutely not. You didn't die in our place. In fact, you couldn't because you are perfect, but Jesus was and he died the death that we should have died to bring us back into a harmonious relationship with God and with one another. And then he goes on and he says, were you baptized into the name of Paul? And, and I love what Paul's doing here. Uh, go back and read these verses. He's like, he's responding so quickly that he starts forgetting the people that he actually baptized. I mean, it's kind of funny, right? It's like Christmas guy. It's like, I did, oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, Steph, the Stephanus' household as well. Like he's so passionate about wanting the Corinthians to see that they need to focus on Jesus and not people that he starts forgetting about what he even did in Corinth. But, but this baptism, this, this, this pointer to baptism is, is not only a reminder that they died to their old way of living and now their lives are not centered around themselves anymore, but around Jesus and others. But it's also a reminder of their new identity. Because when we're baptized, as Jesus instructed, we get baptized into what? The name of the Father Son and Spirit, not into any human being's name. And, and this is just so important. We need to really absorb this and remember this, that when we follow Jesus, now we bear his name. The name of Christ is upon us. The name of our God is upon us. And now we live to live for him. This is why we are here. And this is what we need more than anything. We need to remember that the message of the cross that Paul talks about in verse 17 is not just the, the essential message that brings us life, but is the essential message that keeps us moving in the Christian life. The message of the cross would say this, as we have talked about recently at Redemption Hill, that God created us because he loves us. God is a perfect father. He loves to pour out his love on his creation and on his kids. And yet, rather than just resting in and receiving God's love, we said, God, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. I know better than you do, God. 
And the Bible calls this sin, and our sin separates us from God. Because we are saying, you know what, uh, I've got this, and I'm leaving God, you behind. We run after a thousand other things rather than this relationship with him. But here's the good news of the gospel. This is what Paul couldn't get, uh, he never got tired of communicating that, that though we ran away from God, God came running after us in the person of Jesus Christ. That through the self-sacrifice of the Son of God, he willingly not only lives a perfect life, but dies a cruel death in our place so that if we look to him and receive the gift that he offers us, we will also receive eternal and abundant life because of what he has done for us. As we say, Jesus, thank you for living for me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again so that as I put my faith in you and I follow you and I make you the king of my life, that now everything is different. And in the words of John 10.10, matched up with 1 Timothy 6.19, we can experience that which is truly life. We can experience abundant life. The life, listen, listen, and, and, and I don't know where everyone is today, never do on a Sunday, but, but I just want to tell you, if you are thinking about what it means to be a Christian or follow Jesus, okay, what, what we need to understand is well, there's so many misconceptions and misperceptions about Jesus and Christianity and all of this, okay, but, but what God is essentially inviting us into is the life that we all long for. It's a life of perfect peace and joy and love. There's, it's a life of purpose and satisfaction that we'll never find anywhere else, though we try our entire lives. This is the message of the cross. And this is what Paul says, you've received it. And so you need to keep walking in it. Andrew Wilson sums up this section by saying this, Paul's primary mission was to preach the gospel of the cross of Christ at which all human self-importance comes to nothing. What he's doing is he's essentially cutting the legs off of the way that they were living by saying, though you are so focused on yourselves and focused on people, we need to bring the focus back to where it always must be, which is Jesus and his work for us. And so what I want to do today, as we wrap up our time in God's word, is just simply ask you this. Where do you, in your struggles, in the messiness of your life, in the dysfunction that you experience, where do you need the grace of Jesus? Because what we find here is that grace has a name and the name of grace is Jesus Christ. And God is such a generous God. He is such a benevolent God that he wants to give and give and give if only we would put our hands out to receive it. And so where is it in your life that you need to receive God's grace? To ask another question, how can you more clearly reflect the name of Jesus? As we move to pray, I just want to encourage you to let this question rattle around in your heart just a little bit. 
And even more than a little bit, that this question would rattle around in your mind and in your heart as you move throughout this week and as we move throughout this series over the next months in 1 Corinthians, that we all need God's grace. And we all have ways that we can more clearly reflect the name of Christ. And so we need to ask God to show us what those are so that we can step into them and experience all that he wants to give us. Let's take some time to pray as we prepare to sing and respond to God. So Father, we ask, we ask that as we consider who you are and who we are, that God, we would, yes, have a a sober-mindedness about about our flaws and about our struggles and about how we uh, turn away from you and your plan. But yet, God, even as we come to understand how much we need your love and need your grace, God, that we would, we would understand that you are even more excited to give it to us. And so, God, we pray that we would be excited to receive the grace that you want to pour out on us. God, help us to identify the, the areas of our lives where we, we need to be more unifying, where we need your change to, 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 to just overflow in our lives. God, where we show the gifts that you've given us through serving others, where we're strengthened, where we feel weak and we're not sure if we can go on, that we would just be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. So God, whatever it is, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would call us into the more that is in your heart as we live for you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.